Over a 25-year career, he's worked with a number of the Northeast's most prestigious nonprofit theaters, including Hartford Stage, Goodspeed Musicals, and the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. And in recent years, he's become familiar to theater fans across the country and overseas as the ever-inquisitive moderator and producer of several highly popular theater programs, and most recently, for producing the new book, The Play That Changed My Life. This will be the first time he has ever sat down for a sustained interview about his own experiences in the theater. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Richard Thomas, a member of the advisory committee of the American Theater Wing, and I take particular delight in turning the tables on today's guest, my longtime friend, the executive director of the American Theater Wing, Howard Sherman. So, how does this feel today? <laughs> Well, it's weird. You don't have a lot of notes in it's front weird, of you. It's weird, because I don't have notes. I suddenly, as we were about to start, I thought, okay, have I got everything organized? So so we'll see. Well, it's weird for me, too, because it's, as an actor, I'm not used to taking much of an interest in anyone but myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's see how we both do for let's the next hour. Let's see how we do. Oh, well, this, listen, you've been here – you've been – doing the theater wing thing now for like seven years, right? Yeah, I'm in my seventh year. In your seventh year. And that's an extraordinary job. Are you having fun? I I am having fun. fun is the right word. I mean, it's it's still a job, but... I mean, one of my goals when 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 I ended up coming to New York was I'd spent virtually my entire career in Connecticut, um, except for a short time at Manhattan Theater Club. And I just said... I need to move to New York before I'm too old and too settled to do it. And the wing was an opportunity, frankly, that I looked at initially as simply I bet by being there I could meet a lot of the key people, which sure. it certainly gave me an opportunity. I mean it was startling once I had the job to suddenly find myself sitting across the table from people like Gerald Schoenfeld at meetings because – my career had gone in a whole different direction and to suddenly be in front of some of the most imposing figures of the theater. Of course. I mean, for, for someone who has really been dedicated to the theater for so many years, it's only fair that you got to New York to do this and be in, you know, and have the, have the job that you've got. What changes have taken place in the organization during the time that you've been there? Have there been any shifts or, or changes of, of policy? Well, there have been a lot of changes. I think, I think the first and foremost that, that I must say is for people who don't know, the wing was run – in all practical senses, for 37 years by Isabel Stevenson. And Isabel had the title of president of the board for 32 of those years and chairman of the board for the last five. Isabel was a volunteer. She was not a staff member. She was never paid a dime for working there. She came to the wing in 1966 at a time when it was uncertain whether the wing would even continue to operate. It had been operating since the early 40s. So – she is the reason there is still an American theater wing, her sheer force of will and that of her husband who is her somewhat silent partner, John Stevenson. When I got to the wing, um, Isabel was 90 years old and sadly passed away very shortly after I got the job. So our time together was very brief. That is a fundamental change when you have a leader 
for 37 years and she'd been on the board for about nine years before that. Completely um, identified with the organization. Completely identified. I mean, you know, anybody, you know, who was a diehard theater geek like me, we all knew who she was because we saw her every year on the Tonys and she would come out in some fabulous dress and and she would talk about this organization, the American Theater Wing. Inevitably, as someone who had gotten up in years, the organization was not advancing as much as it might have been. And so the charge and even even the topic of discussion in, in interviews, the, the job interviews, was where do we go next? The wing has changed its focus a number of times over its history. It started as a wartime service organization. For 20 years, it ran a professional theater school. Certainly, it's had the role in the Tony Awards for this will be the 64th year. But – it's changed in different ways for each generation and I had to look at it both for the purpose of the job interview as well as the purpose of did I want to be there and say, well, what should the wing be now? What could the wing be now and, and see if I could sell that to the board and therefore sell myself and I found the one thing that most interested me, the core of what my interest lay in the working in the theater TV program, which the wing had been doing here on cable TV in New York since 1979. And what I found so interesting about it was it was the only program that I'd ever seen, although I had only seen it once I came to the wing because I was up in Connecticut. It was the only program where theater artists sat around and talked to each other. As I thought about it and thought about the job, it reminded me of why I got into this business, which is I don't think I have you – know, I, I know I don't have a, a particular talent for theater. I'm not a director, a designer, an actor, uh, a writer. Um, I just love it. I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to in some way contribute to it. And as my career had progressed, I found myself with opportunities to meet – and talk with artists that the average theater fan doesn't necessarily have. And to give two quick examples, both of which revolve around my friend Alan Akeborn, that I'd gotten to know this major playwright, Alan Akeborn, was of course thrilling and to know a great playwright, and I know many great playwrights now, is 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 remarkable. But because Alan was um, from England, he di- hadn't interacted with a lot of American artists and – in relatively close proximity, I had a chance to introduce him to A.R. Gurney, of whom he was a great fan. And as you'll recall, when we, we were in London, you yes. were doing art. I took Alan and his wife, Heather, and you out to dinner. Yes, I enjoyed uh, it th- so much. At that time, the most expensive dinner I ever paid for myself. <laughs> I'm um, glad to hear it. <laughs> but what was great for me was that I was able to – hear conversations between artists um, and realize that that's what the wing was doing with working in the theater. And so I thought there have to be other ways to foster those conversations and to make those conversations accessible. So this is an incredibly long answer to what would seem a simple question. But in the activities that I began to focus on, it was all about letting people hear about how theater is made in the words of the people who make it, that it's not about being a teaching organization, but it's about creating opportunities for learning. And frankly, before Isabel passed away, 
this program, Downstage Center, was the first thing that I had come up with that I was able to tell her about. Mm -hmm. And so she knew the kernel of this idea. And we started doing it in 2004. uh, It was April of 2004. This is something like the 257th interview that we've done. And, of course, it's the only one where I've ever done this much talking, at least I hope so. But it reaches out. And last year, when we only did 22 new shows, from be- including the new shows in the archive that's online, this show was downloaded 500,000 times. Fantastic. Um, across the country, around the world, we have fans in Australia, in Germany. It's amazing. And I know it sounds simplistic, but the internet's amazing. Well, it is amazing. I, you know, having, having done one of your on-camera panels when I was doing a show – here in New York, I know that the panel was made up of actors who were at the at the current time involved in doing plays in the season. But it's a way of talking about theater, which is not about selling your show. It doesn't have the the standard. Uh, I'm going to be on a talk show and talk about my show. Hook. It's really about people who love what they do, talking about it to each other. And so it's very different than the standard fair when you see uh, an artist, or theater artist, being interviewed. Uh, vis-a-vis whatever product he or she is trying to sell at the moment or sell tickets to. Well, exactly. I mean, we always usually talk about the current project first. Um, We know we're not the first place on press agents' lists of where people are going to go be interviewed. I'd say most of the people who are are watching the show already know what everybody on the panel is doing in town. They know what each other is doing, but but what's always been interesting is... I mean, the audience, because you you have a theater-savvy audience, I think. But what's, what's interesting is even people who've worked together a lot, I find, in, in the case of on working in the theater, certainly, they don't have the opportunity, they never take the time to stop and talk about the process. They talk about the show they right. may be in together. But if they get together for dinner, they're friends. You talk yeah. about what you did, what you saw, and it's just a great opportunity and people come away from it sort of fascinated by the nature of the conversation or we get people who don't know each other at all right. who meet in that yeah. context. Well, that, that, that happened when I, when I did the show. I, um, it, it's true. I, she must have I, – I suppose the internet is all post Ms. Stevenson, correct? I mean that, that – I mean it existed in, but the organization hadn't plunged yes, into it, it, it as Yes, sort fully. of taking off in that direction. That would, some, that would be something that would absolutely thrill her I would imagine. Well, what it's done is you know, again, the TV show, if you had cable TV in New York since 1979, you could see it on CUNY right. TV. If you didn't, you couldn't. Yeah. I was on one of those shows in 1996 when I was working up at Goodspeed. I never saw the show. Yeah. They didn't send me a tape and I never had occasion to see it. Now, not that I want to or I would recommend it to anyone, you can go online anytime you want and call yeah. up that show and watch it. It's and a terrific See me resource. when I was thinner and had more hair. <laughs> um, but but what, what's fascinating was the ability to take it beyond just New York. Sure. And in many ways, the work that we do – Maybe even more meaningful to people outside of New York because if you're in New York, you yeah, it's can, a window in it's a window into the into the scene, right? But you can go to Times Talks, <clears throat> you can go to the 92nd Street Y. Frankly, you can often go to the Barnes and Noble at Lincoln Center and see theater people talking about what they do. It's 
the moment you leave the island of Manhattan that the accessibility drops off precipitously. And so I, I'm always most gratified. And I mean, we do get the odd email from someone in Kansas or Nebraska who says, I read all this stuff on websites, theatermania, broadway.com, playbill.com, etc. But um, we're the only chance they have to actually watch the people, as you say, do more than just sell their current show. Would you say that's the most significant um, thing that's grown or changed since you've come on board? I think it's it's been understanding that it's that mindset that that's what we want to do because we've played it out over – Working in the theater which existed, Downstage Center, which was the first thing, then bringing online the theater intern group, which takes place here in New York for kids who are doing internships, Springboard NYC, which brings kids who are in college who are thinking about moving to New York here to really understand what it is to work in the theater and the business of theater. And even this book that we came out with three months ago, The the Play That Changed My Life. What a great idea for a book. Well, crazily enough – I had the idea in 1991 and because I'd picked up a book or got been given a book called The Movie That Changed My Life and I was terribly disappointed in it um, because it turned out it was mostly short story writers talking about movies that impacted them and I thought it was going to be movie makers. Right, and this is playwrights, correct? Right. Talking and, about- but I also said there should be a book about theater. I want to know – why, you know, what inspired theater people to do what they do? And I, I walked around with this idea. And, you know, when I had the idea, I was a press agent at a regional theater. I didn't know the first thing about publishing. Um, I don't think I knew anyone with any connections. So I always just harbored this idea. And oddly, I could have done it. It would have made sense when I was at the O'Neill because it would have fit perfectly well with the O'Neill's mission as well in terms of developing new work. But I think I was so consumed there with other issues for the organization that I don't think it even came into my brain. And after I'd been here at the wing for a few years, I said, you know, I could probably do this now. And it's enormously gratifying to to hold that book in your hands. I mean – Well, tell for, us in brief what – what the idea of it? Well, this, it was a very simple idea. It was to go to playwrights and ask them not about the play of their own that changed their life. Not, it's not about tell us about your first big hit. It was about what was it you saw that you remember most making an impact on you um, and why and where were you in your life, et cetera, et cetera. And it was fascinating because as as we did the initial approaches on the book and then later Ben Hodges who edited it did some of the others. I mean there were people that I would call up and they would immediately start telling me. Yeah. I mean it was that – they knew exactly um, what it was. Ironically, Pete Gurney almost pulled out of the book – because between the time I first asked him to do it and the time we got around to getting our publishing contract, he decided to make the story of the play that changed his life into his next play. And it's going to be at Lincoln Center later this season. So, you know, how surreal. So you've had a profound effect. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't make any more claim because obviously <clears throat> Pete had always treasured that moment. And then, there, as I said, there's this moment where I thought, Pete Gurney's not going to be in the book. Pete Gurney was the first playwright 
I ever knew. You know, the first playwright I ever had the phone number. But for. he is in the book, and yeah. he is in the book. Oh, he God, didn't write great. specifically about that play because about the play that he saw because, as he said, I don't want to give away sure. what what I want to put on stage. I'm not surprised you got a great response from playwrights. It reminds me a little bit of when Diana Rigg decided to put together a book of bad reviews called No Turn on Stone, which I'm sure you know well. It's a great book. And she sent out the request to actors. She was inundated by responses because most of us really don't remember our good reviews, the ones that we really – the ones that are just um, um, – impacted on our memory are, are the worst reviews we've ever had. So and, you know, it was actually, a very fun- successful. As you say that, it's very funny because having been a press agent <clears throat> for 10 years, sadly, I probably remember the bad reviews. Sure. See, and and the great go. offense I took on behalf of the the artists that I was representing. Of course. Than the particular praise. Well, it's, I recommend – I don't know if it's still in print, but I recommend that to everybody. That's a wonderful book as well. I certainly intend to, to get uh, the play that changed my life. I'm very, very interested in it. I think it's a – it was a terrific idea and I'm glad that you got to finally do it. It's it's neat. I this mean – This is – you know, it's such a, a unique job, uh, the one that you have at the theater wing and it's very different in kind – I mean certainly an outgrowth of what you've been doing your whole life but it's different in kind. What – did you ever think about the theater wing in the past? Was this? Did you have an aspiration to be involved with the organization, or did it just sort of come your way? The opportunity for the interview. I, it, it came my way. I uh, my running joke is that when I was in the high school drama club, and we'd all sit around after a rehearsal or at a cast party, and you know, as you would do, fantasize about how you were all together going to go to New York and do shows. You you dream about winning Tony Awards. You do not dream about having a couple of spares in your office closet for display purposes. Um, so, no, it, it, it wasn't for a moment. And in fact, you know, one of the great challenges for the wing is that we did create the Tony Awards and we own the trademark of the Tony Awards. And the Tony Awards as an entity are better known than we are. Um, one of the challenges and again part of the goal of all of this media work that we've been doing that we put out on the internet is we need to be more. Uh, we do the Tony Awards in partnership with the Broadway League. It's become very productive partnership. Uh, it used to be somewhat fractious. Um, we are deeply proud of the awards and of the people who we've been able to recognize and indeed whose lives have been changed by recognition by the Tonys. Um, but it's not all we are. And so another part of the goal with these programs is is how do we how do we have a raison d'etre beyond just giving out awards once a year? And well, it so, sounds like you've already moved in that direction with all well, these other programs. Over the course of, I mean, again, we're now talking with with you know six and a half years um, site that we've we've made that move. We've certainly grown what we're doing, and but we still, I'm still convinced we haven't quite reached the tipping point in terms of people being aware of what we do. People listening to this program obviously know it exists. Yeah, They've been to our the website. Yeah, sure. um, it's, I'm still convinced there are a lot of people out there that we've not reached. We don't have a huge marketing budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is that viral thing. Uh, it seems um, to me that your programs uh, that are directed at young people, aspiring theater artists, is, is a very, very important thing. Well, it's wonderful. I mean, 
I'm I'm always a if little. If I were coming to New York, wanting to be in the theater, wanting to know about what to do, I would think that would be a great resource. Well, people occasionally come up to me, and I meet actors for the first time. Um, and if I meet younger actors, I mean, my favorite comment was Jonathan Groff, who everybody knows from um, Spring Awakening. Jonathan was at one of our luncheons and said to one of my staff, he said, oh, I remember when I was in high school, I used to run home after high school. He grew up in Pennsylvania and and I'd get on the computer and, and I'd watch working in the theater. And I simultaneously thought how marvelous that this incredibly talented young man uh, who was in a community that didn't offer him a lot in the way of theater had us as a resource. I also thought – We've only been on the internet for like six years. Oh, he's young and I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea, the idea of someone running home from high school and getting on the internet is completely, well, it's, it's, completely it's, bizarre. It's not our experience. But <laughs> Now, speaking about your experience, let's get just a little personal. OK, so the play that changed my life, what, what, when did it start for you? Did your parents take you to the theater? What made you fall in love with the theater? Strangely, I believe it's genetic and I'm not joking. Because I may have been taken to some children's theater shows. I have no distinct memory of them. My first – Sometimes that has the opposite of the desired effect. Well, my first actual memory of theater was going to a five-year-old's birthday party. I was five. It was somebody in my kindergarten class, Stephen Garfinkel. I have no idea where he is today. But I grew up in New Haven and there was children's theater at the Long Wharf Theater right. uh, in New Haven, which completely unbeknownst to me was brand new. This was right when Longworth had opened and I have absolutely no memory of the show. I have only an image of being in the theater and in fact, it was a very dark and foreboding place which in fact is what the main stage of Longworth is. Sure. It's sort of close and dark and of course, I was so much smaller that it seemed bigger than it is. I have no memory of the show. It's funny. Arvin Brown, who ran Long War for so many years, he and I got to talking once and I said to him, you know, that my first theater experience that I remembered was at Long Wharf. And I told him about this and he said, I can't tell you what the show was, but whatever it was, I directed it. Wow. And I said, well, I hope you're not offended that I don't remember it. He said, I don't remember it. So, <laughs> so we're even. But, you know, so, so there, there was this there became this interest. I remember. Did your going, folks take you to the theater in no, New York? Did we you didn't come have. We didn't have those kind of resources. Curiously enough, my dad's best friend, his family, owned the Schubert in New Haven at the time. It was no longer oh. owned by the Schubert chain, but because my father didn't want to impose great theater, um, he didn't ask for tickets. We didn't have – you know, I didn't grow up poor, but we didn't have the kind of disposable income that you could just buy theater tickets all the time. The first real theater experience that I fully remember was seeing Fiddler on the Roof when I was in second grade at the Schubert. It was the first national tour. I know that now. I wouldn't have known the first thing about it. And of course, I always say that was a religious experience, not a cultural one because – if you were Jewish and Fiddler on the Roof came to your town, that is what everyone at your synagogue went to do was sure. go see Fiddler on the Roof. So so I remember seeing that and then I don't remember seeing theater again till I was in about seventh grade when um, we – my parents took – we came to New York uh, and they'd heard about this half price booth in Times Square and we saw uh, the magic show, uh, the Stephen Schwartz, Doug Henning – 
musical um, from the second balcony at the – I think it was the court, which means you're literally – you have yeah. an aerial view of all the magic tricks. Right. Um, the gods. And then it wasn't really until I guess I was in ninth grade when other friends wanted to start seeing things. And in ninth grade um, was the first time uh, in my school there was it was still junior high that the, sh- the school did a did a show, and I auditioned and uh-huh. uh, I played Snoopy, and you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Um, Certainly for Woodbridge, Connecticut, the definitive performance of Snoopy ever in that small town. Um, I, I, expect, know, I expect to see a reprise on the shows. And over. then, and then in high school, I was in. We did the high school did two shows a year, and I was in every single one of them. I also usually would be involved in putting the program together, um, and in some cases, helping to design or and or build the sets. So you were just drawn to it um, as, a, as a practitioner, too, yeah. as a young practitioner. Yeah. It's still very early. But it was still very early. And as I, as I was saying, the dream you have, I mean, maybe there, there – I know there are much more sophisticated high school drama clubs, but all we knew about was acting. I sure, mean, we barely of course. Understood well, that's, how, what, that's what most people begin by thinking about, yeah. their way into the theater would be. And But the other thing was I was a very good student and – in looking to college and what little we knew about theater was that theater is a terrible way to make a living. It's a hard way to make a life. Again, people thinking about actors and how many unemployed actors and I had swallowed that hook, line and sinker. And so when time came to think about college, theater was not remotely in my thinking. I was going to ask. I mean, you, that was not a college career, college theater career? At all. Not at all. And I ended up um, going to the University of Pennsylvania, which is obviously an excellent, excellent school, um, but it had no theater program. And it turned out to be the best thing that could have happened for me. Why because is that? If, if you go to a school that has a theater program, you are surrounded by other kids who want to work in theater. And while there were kids interested in theater and who did extracurricular theater and all of that, there wasn't – there certainly wasn't the academic aspect to it. Everything was extracurricular and you had the opportunity to get your hands on things more quickly. So – You weren't competing for that I wasn't competing. Now, in my first semester at school, I wasn't going to do theater at all. And then and I was miserable. And so <laughs> second semester freshman year, first semester sophomore year, in those two semesters, I directed two shows, stage managed a show and played a, a reasonably significant role in uh, the big musical. Well, you were a goner. I mean- and I was a goner except that immediately after my sophomore year, I stopped doing undergraduate theater. Um, Did you get a job? Well – it wasn't that same year, but there were two things going on. One was I had a work-study job as part of my financial aid package, and I was lucky enough to get a job in the box office at the Annenberg Center oh. uh, in Philadelphia. So I was able to see a lot of things, and I had to be around the theater. And the associate managing director of, of the Annenberg Center at that time um, was a really remarkable woman uh, named Catherine Marshall – who uh, had who who was at the center for 
from about the mid-70s probably to the early 90s. Um, and there's a whole generation of us who went through Penn who either – she did teach a theater class even though there wasn't a theater major. Um, but there's a whole generation of us who went through Penn who were drawn to her and it ranges from Todd Hames who runs the roundabout who was there when when she went back to – work and to the center through to people like um, the producer David Stone um, who did Wicked right. and um, you know and and others and so there's a whole 15 to 20 year span of kids who gravitated around her she's known as khaki to absolutely everyone um, and the best explanation of what she was like for everyone was actually given to me by my wife when she met her because I kept talking about this extraordinary woman to whom I'm still very close. And when Lauren met her and spent time with her and came away, she turned to me and she said, oh, I get it now. She said, it's like having a parent who completely understands and supports your desire to be in theater. Right. And – that so it wasn't that she was a, te- a teacher that influenced me in that way because I never took her class. It was just the access to her. So often we have to find those mentor parents that are not part of our family of origin that um, who don't see the problem with what we want to do. Yeah, because my parents always supported me. My parents, but when I did realize I, I was a goner and all of these other things I'd been thinking about majoring in weren't going to work and I just became an English major because it was easy for me. Right. Um, but they were still nervous and – Sure. You were supposed to go to the theater, not into the theater. Right. <laughs> I was going to an Ivy League school. It was expensive. I was going to get a good education and all of that. So you know, when I got out of school and I went to work at the Westport Country Playhouse for a summer and then I did a okay, season. So you started working when you were not in school. You I were started working immediately. Jobs. I mean it's – I, I – I hesitate to say I've never not been paid for working in the theater. I never had to take a free job. Well, you're a way ahead of a lot of us. Well, but it was that work-study job. Sure. Because the first two years it was in the box office and then the second two years I actually was paid to be Khaki Marshall's – one of her student assistants. So no one's ever called your waiter, huh? So I've, <laughs> no. I did some of that stuff you know, during the summers and things. <clears throat> but, but in theater, so I, I got out. Did a summer at Westport, did a season at Manhattan Theater Club. This is right. all doing PR. Went back to Westport and then by great luck, while I was doing my second season at Westport and I didn't really want to go back to Manhattan Theater Club, one of the critics – and we had – we were doing 11 shows in 11 weeks. So we had an opening night every Monday night. One of the critics said, did you hear that so-and-so just left Hartford Stage? And I'd grown up in New Haven. I'd gone to Yale Rep. I'd gone to Long Wharf. I'd been going into New York at this point. I'd never set foot at Hartford Stage. Uh-huh. And I immediately just got on the phone and I called and I asked for the managing director and the guy who I knew was the managing director wasn't there anymore. I said, well, who's in charge? And they gave me the name and I said, well, can I speak with him? I mean, and strangely enough, he got on the phone with me <laughs> and – this was was David Hawkinson, who um, ultimate who had just come to the theater to be a managing director. The theater was having severe financial problems. Mark Lamas had been the artistic director for five years at this point, um, 
but it turned out it was the right place at the right time. David um, was replacing PR and marketing um, from from the prior managing director and I actually had a unique combination of things which David thought were going to be valuable. I was from Connecticut. I had done PR in Connecticut and I had done PR in New York, which the theater needed. And unbeknownst to me at the time, um, David Hawkinson had been the press assistant at the Westport Country Playhouse roughly 20 years earlier. And so he knew the kind of rigor that doing 11 shows in 11 weeks sure. puts on anybody involved. And I love to tell the story. Mark Lamus did not want me hired. He did not believe – he either believed I would not be successful or I would burn myself out. I was simply too young and this happened as well with our marketing director at the time um, who Mark also did not want hired. Uh, David prevailed and we both turned out to be fairly successful. The marketing director is a guy named Jeff Woodward who sure. then was the managing director at McCarter Theater for 17 years and is now up at Syracuse stage. So – I was very fortunate. Of course, Mark you know, did not hold a grudge and came to be a very dear friend. And in many ways, my – I have no graduate degree. Well, I was just going to ask about that. You, there was a little jump from being in – from being an undergraduate to all of a sudden being in PR. Well, I was the PR director at, you know, at Hartford immediately and I, I can jump back because I skipped over a little story. But, but the fact is, is that's really where I learned theater. My graduate school was Hartford Stage uh-huh. because – David um, believed that the success of his staff reflected upon the theater and reflected upon him. So he gave us every opportunity to grow regardless of what our title was. Mark's work was, of course, extraordinary um, and wonderful artists were coming through. And I, and I will tell you, coming back to this issue about my parents being nervous and going into the business – my parents started to become a little more comfortable with me being in theater if I was working with someone they'd heard of, that I must be doing okay if I'm working with so-and-so. So when – back when I was in college, I promoted a film premiere that had been directed by Peter Bogdanovich and Peter came to Philadelphia for the premiere. That meant something. Sure. And there were stars of varying fame coming through – Westport. And I have to say, when you showed up at Hartford in the fall of 1987 to play Hamlet, you, they knew. <laughs> and that reassured them in an extraordinary way. And I have to say, it was really then that they said, I think he's going to be okay in this career. And sent me cookies. Well, my mother, <laughs> God bless her, um, you know, because – Delicious cookies. I would have stayed your friend anyway with or well, without the cookies. <laughs> we had a lot of experiences at Hartford Stage. You know, it was a great place to great time and, and I can't give too much credit. It's impossible to give too much credit to, to David and Mark because Mark was and is a superb artist who – Absolutely wanted to know what his staff thought. Um, I was, as I said, 23 years old and Mark would come to me and if there had just been a run through of a show that I'd seen, say, what would you think? And I go, oh, it's great. He go, no, 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 no. What did you think? Tell me exactly. And he really wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And as we worked together over time, Mark learned that I had very strong opinions 
And we had an agreement, which was he would never ask me my opinion if he didn't want to know it. Because there are times when an artist doesn't want other people's opinions. And so my mouth was shut. But if he came to me and said, let's talk about it, we really talked about it. And the other signal thing was because the theater was having some financial trouble, I remember when Jeff Woodward had gotten there and Jeff and I were peers. I was PR. He was marketing. um, And we both reported to Mark and David separately. But we would work together and – very often we would go in to see David and we'd say, well, we had this idea and we want to try this. And after Jeff – I got there a couple of months before Jeff, but probably two or three months after we'd been there together, David turned to us one of these times and said, look, you don't need to come to me every time you want to try something. What they've been doing here wasn't working. So go try something else. To be – I was 23, Jeff was 27. To be – we'd never been department heads before. To be given that edict, to be given that freedom at that age was so extraordinarily empowering that it's really amazing. Well, I can tell you it was a great place for me just briefly. I mean Hartford Stage – I know both of those men and Jeff very well and I have – the deepest respect for for David Hawkinson, and I know that he's tough and also giving at the same time and generous. And Mark Lamos, who I sort of have always considered a kind of artistic soulmate, we did a lot of sh- a lot of great shows together. Who I think he's one of our finest directors and a dear friend. The atmosphere at Hartford Stage was always special, and um, whenever I would get there, I felt like I was home. I felt like I was going to be challenged, but I felt like I was going to be supported and. Uh, you know, it was a, it was an amazing, amazing, amazing time. One of the things I you realized, stayed there. Well, I was there. Eight how many and a half, years? I was there eight and a half years. So things not, must have been pretty good. Well, not, oh no, I threatened to quit every year. David, <laughs> it was every year. I would say it was time, and David would have to take me out to dinner and convince me to stay. And ultimately, I do feel I stayed too long. I feel like my last few years there, they were getting more out of me than I was getting out of the experience. Uh-huh. But I was with people who who cared about me and who I cared about and who gave me opportunities and I didn't want to do PR anywhere else. So the question right. was going to be when could I move on? Move but on just, and move on from PR, right, not just from, from Hartford Stage but to a different aspect it, of working in theater. So it, what was next? Exactly. Well, I just want to say, you know, one thing. What I didn't realize initially when I got to Hartford was that in 1985, the American Regional Theater Movement was perhaps 20 years old. I thought of these organizations as institutions. As I said, when I went to that children's theater at Long Wharf, the theater was brand new. I had no idea. Sure. I grew up always knowing of these theaters. When you were at Hartford and all of these other wonderful people, Graciela Danielle and the late Norman René did, did stuff and so many people, we were all young. The institution hadn't become an institution. Yes. When you celebrate the 25th anniversary, which we did uh, – actually, I think it was the year we did Hamlet, um, that's very different from the fact that Hartford Stage was is going to be approaching its 50th anniversary. Then you're like the symphony and the opera. We were – it was still loose enough. It was still undefined enough. So now to answer the question about how did I move on, I developed a very nice relationship with Michael Price who runs Goodspeed Opera House yeah. about half an hour south of Hartford Stage. And Michael – was very friendly with David as well. And Michael used to keep calling me and say, I want you to come do my PR. I want you to come do my PR. And I said, I don't want to come do your PR. I'm not remotely interested. I work at a great theater. I work for great people. Um, 
I don't want to do PR. Whenever I leave here, it will be to do something else. Offer me something else. And I did leave Hartford Stage when Dave Hawkinson left. David left. Um, he'd been there about eight years. And I decided that um, I was so much a part of what in particular David had built with Mark that whoever came in to manage the organization was inevitably going to make changes and I didn't think I was capable of what – of making what I believed would be change for change's sure, sake. Sure, sure. And so I actually briefly worked on a political campaign in Connecticut um, but had kept up this relationship with Michael Price and it was only after I was out of Hartford. I would run into him. I'd go down to the theater to see stuff. He actually had called me to meet with his new PR person. And he'd keep saying to me, I'm not going to wait for this campaign to be over for you to come work for me. And he did this like three times. And finally, because the campaign was not a great fit, I had no desire to be in politics. Not your kind I was, of theater. Well, I was totally out <laughs> of my element. Right. And that was, you know, I, I understood the world of theater. And so finally, I called him up and I said, look, I don't like the taunting. What on earth do you have in mind? Now, he will happily tell anyone that I called him and asked for a job. I will say, no, he kept dangling a job in front of me, which I finally bid at. But he said, well, I've wanted to have a general manager. How about coming and doing that? And we talked about it and he really had no idea what he wanted a general manager to do. And he'd never delegated a lot of the administrative responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And finally, we just took the leap together because we liked each other enormously. Sure. And that was what got me out of PR. And I had also done marketing for a bit at Hartford Stage. And, um, you know, it gave me a title. It gave me something that said I was more than just a press agent. And so I was there for four years. I had a very varied portfolio there because the way things were structured, it probably wasn't a classic general manager job. But it was Michael learning to offload some of the things he'd always held for himself. And you're getting a more comprehensive managerial education. Yeah, but it was very clear after a few years that certainly Michael wasn't going anywhere and obviously hasn't and I'm convinced will be there forever. I wanted something more. I wanted right. to be a managing director. And so frankly, there I did some interviews. I did them in some cases surreptitiously because Michael right. wouldn't have taken well to the idea of, of my being interviewing around. And when I was offered a job in Rochester, New York to run Jiva Theater, they were the first people who said, OK, we believe you can be a managing director. And so I went to Rochester. How long were you there? I was only there two years. I didn't even work my full contract. A little too chilly feel, in the winter? Well – it, it, Chile, I mean, I have to say, Jiva is a wonderful theater. It is a regional theater different than what I had grown up with in Connecticut. The Connecticut theaters had, and I believe still have when they use it, an extraordinary asset, which is that their incredible proximity to New York means that they probably shouldn't do work that has been in New York because their audience can see that. And so – whether it was Mark and again Lloyd Richards and later Stan Wojewodski, Arvin Brown, later Doug Hughes and Gordon Edelstein, these people have a freedom in running a regional theater that 
is very different when you are the only regional theater for 60 miles in any direction, the only theater for 60 miles in any direction other than what might come through as a Broadway tour. And so the distance from New York, the repertory, which was absolutely right for that community, was really different than what I'd worked on. And to be perfectly honest, I was lonely. I went there when I was 36 or so. a lot of the staff were married. Mm-hmm. I was running the joint, so I couldn't be – I couldn't hang out with the crew, which is what I used to do at Hartford. And I went home every night and just – other than if my friends in other towns were there to answer the phone, I was lonely. And so, so you that, felt like you were in the regions. I was you in were the regions. In the provinces. I was isolated. JetBlue wasn't running yet. So getting to New York from Rochester wasn't easy. Yeah. So – when the O'Neill opportunity came up and that was through a headhunter and again a, a competition, I went back to what I knew. I went back to be closer to my family. Uh, my dad had always had some health issues and when those went on when I was in Rochester and I couldn't go see him in the hospital and had to wait for the phone to ring to know how he was, that mattered. But the O'Neill is not a particularly – Typical producing entity. So that's a different one. You got well, that into a was whole other. It was a shift. Transition. It was and and what was hard for me about the O'Neill was that the O'Neill is really a collection of separate artistic endeavors that share a common facility. And I was replacing George White, who had founded and run the O'Neill Center for at that point. 36 years, I believe. Following a founder is never easy because the place is so imprinted with them. It turned out there were a lot of physical plant issues, a lot of deferred maintenance, and I ended up spending an awful lot of time working on getting the place back in physical shape so that it could then be properly welcoming to all of the programs that took place on the campus. How long were you there? I was there three years. It was incredibly stressful because there were financial difficulties. There were physical difficulties. And frankly, I'd started dating someone who is now my wife. While I was at the O'Neill, she was in New York. And after my three years, two years of dating, I said, I've got to make the move to New York because I'm going to be too old. I said that earlier. And I've got to see if this relationship is going to work out. And I took the leap. And that's, You took the leap? I took the leap by saying I resigned from the O'Neill and did not know what I would do but that I was moving to New York. Wow. That's a leap of faith in it, fact. It was. And, and again – Good for Lauren. You know, a happy accident that the opportunity came open at the wing that I – saw things that I might be able to do for the wing and that ultimately they bought what I was selling. But it was – if I had gone for a few more years, whether at the O'Neill or staying elsewhere out in the regions, it would have been so hard to make the move to New York because I would have just been so comfortable. Yes, of course. Um, You know, it, it seems to me that by the time you got to the wing, you had covered so many bases in terms of theatrical expertise and experience and knowledge of different areas of the process that you bring to this particular gig a deeply ingrained sense of what it really means to work in the theater. I mean obviously you love the theater. You referred to yourself as a theater geek but I think 
I think you're you're profoundly connected to the theater and devoted to it. But they've got somebody in you who knows how so many different aspects of the business work. So you've got the nuts and bolts experience. Well, you know, it's interesting. I um, this is you didn't you didn't intend to pick up all these different skills one after another, did you? Well. It, it's funny. You know, you? We all pick up skills in different ways and, and I can tell you a, a funny story about that. As an that actor, I have no skills. So it's very impressive to me to hear about what you, well, well, what but, you learned. But Richard, you know, you're being self-effacing too because you did not graduate from college yet you're one of the best read, most educated people I know. So we all pick up things in different in different ways. Um the the training again. I, I particularly go back to, to Dave Hawkins and and to, to, to Michael Price, who who has a, has a, di- a different way about him. But David, in particular, and said flat out, he said, "Look, to be a managing director of a not for profit theater, you can't know how to do everything. You need to understand how it's done. Be smart enough." To hire the people to do the things that you can't do yourself. And that was the way managing directors were built in the 80s. That was the mindset that you had to understand what was going on in the shops and you had to understand. There's been a change, again, as these organizations have become institutions, which is that in some cases, managing directors have one responsibility. And that's raising money. And they will have general managers. They will have associate producers who will do some of those aspects. But going back to Jeff and me and I haven't mentioned my good friend Michael Ross who was managing director at Long Wharf and then Center Stage and is now at Westport with Mark. um, We had to know. David wanted us to know how it all worked. And so – we each had our particular expertise, Jeff in marketing, Mike in finance, me in PR, but but we got what it was to make theater. And indeed, and I may regret saying this because it's going to be in our archives, there are some theaters now that I don't know if I chose to go back to running a not-for-profit would necessarily take me because though I have raised – in some cases, significant amounts of money in my life, I'm not first and foremost a fundraiser. fundraiser. And that is a change as the needs of the business have changed. You've brought an amazing amount of experience and dedication to this particular job. It must have been very thrilling to suddenly be involved with something like the Tony Awards. I mean, after this long journey... Well, I, I joke. It really, my entire career was nothing than the most incredible ruse to get myself comps to the Tonys. <laughs> because again, now I'm going to bring you back into it. You know, when I was at Hartford, Hartford received the Regional Theater Tony, and um, as is always the case for the Regional Award, the theater is asked, "Is there someone you would like to have present it?" And um, of course, we said we'd like Richard Thomas. And, Everybody thought that was a great idea and you were asked to do it. But as it turned out, they had a pair of tickets for Mark and David, just a pair for the two of them. And you had a pair for yourself and your wife. And what that meant was 
Mark's date and I, because David was generous enough to say, you know, Howard's worked very hard promoting the theater. He should be there. We were going to have to sit in um, the overflow space at, at the restaurant next door to, gosh, I think it was the Brooks Atkinson uh-huh. the year we did it. And we ended up nobody – your wife didn't want to sit alone while you were up on stage. I didn't want to sit alone. Mark's partner didn't want to sit alone. So we all sat in the overflow area. <laughs> and, you know, that had been my only experience with the Tony Awards. Not anymore. I mean, not anymore. But it's glamorous, certainly. And from, you know, there's a lot of details. It's a huge production. And and so much credit is due to Ricky Kirshner and Glenn Weiss, who really produced the show. I mean, I'm on all these committees, you know, as are so many people with the wing and the league. It's been fascinating. It's been fascinating learning about how television works versus how theater works. No differently than doing the play that changed my life has allowed me to learn some more about how publishing works and how each of these disciplines differ from the one that I grew up in. But fundamentally, what's great about the Tony Awards is that I do hear from people over and over again that when they were growing up, that was their first exposure to theater. So no differently than Downstage Center, working in the theater, in the wings, the play that changed my life, Springboard NYC, all these things that we're doing at the wing, the Tony Awards are an incredible tool for inspiring people to be interested in the theater. And they have to work on multiple levels. It is to recognize excellence and achievement, which is an imperfect process because inevitably one person gets chosen and sure. everybody's who's nominated is deserving and probably many people who didn't get nominated are deserving and that's actually a little hard for me to deal with because i you know the idea of that singularity is not something i'd thought about until it's a fundamental I problem with the awards with as any, a, awards, any awards as a concept yeah. um so so i i had to adjust to that but what makes me feel great about it is a this issue of how many people tell me including major stars who will talk about that they would see the tonys and that's what inspired them and the idea that it is you know the only 3 hours a year that network television dedicates to the art of live theater is really important and we've got to thank CBS for Absolutely. now you know we're we're 40 plus years on yeah. with CBS good for them the, the attrition in the representation of theater and advocacy of theater and television has been shocking over the last since when you look back at the old hallmark days and the days when when uh, theater arts and in, in the in television in the '60s, when there was so much classical music and theater and stuff on television, it's virtually non-existent now. So, from Snoopy, <laughs> from Snoopy all yeah. the way to the Tonys and executive director of the Theater Wing, what, what I wouldn't say, what are you most proud of? But what are the first of all? What is it that you would most like to be known for in terms of what you have done at the Wing, and also? As we finish up, where is the wing headed? Where are you looking in the future for the development of the wing? I think we're, we're looking for at the wing more opportunities to draw attention to and help people understand theater because there's so much of it. I think you know, some people find it – think it's elitist or think it's intellectual and we need people to understand that it can be – 
those things but can also just be entertainment and all of that can be embraced. In terms of, of me at the wing, I don't even want to distinguish because I don't do it. I mean doing this show today is a bit awkward because it's not about aggrandizing Howard Sherman. Just pay no attention to it's, the man behind yeah, the, the curtain. But it really is about you know why we do what we do and mine is just another story of, of how somebody got to do what they do in the theater. What am I proudest of or what you know do I look forward to? I am proud every time I get an email from someone I've never heard of who writes in to the general mailbox of the wing and says – you are my lifeline to theater. You're helping me understand it. I think if 20 years from now, wherever the heck we may both be, I met someone who said, oh, my God, I used to listen to you on Downstage Center, that would make me happy, especially if they were in the business. A young Howard Sherman. You know, there. there's, something, there's something great. I mean, it's probably true in every business, but I've really never worked in, in many other businesses. There's something great about the fact that theater is oral tradition, that it's handed down, that the experience of seeing theater is something that people relate to each other. You know, that you, when you were a child actor, made your Broadway debut in the same show that James Earl Jones made his Broadway debut in. And probably every time you see James Earl Jones, for everything you've achieved, James Earl Jones remembers the seven-year-old boy. That's right. Who he shepherded on stage. And I now look at people who have worked for me and where they are just as I believe that Mark Lamus and David Hawkinson and Michael Price and, and my beloved Kaki Marshall look at where I am and we're proud not of our own achievements but of the achievements of the people that we had the opportunity to know. So I guess at the point at which I look back – it's going to be, have I helped others to be a part of this? Have I in any way inspired or taught? And that ultimately is the direction that I've sort of steered the wing in, is just making it so that these people can have access, these kids, these adults, these people in the business, or just the general audience can have access to what it is to be a part of theater more so than – they might have under other circumstances. Well, there are young Howard Shermans, male and female, out there. God help very, us if they're all young very Howard lucky Shermans. That they, that they have you at this point in your journey and doing what you've done to bring them into the fold. Uh, it's a terrific life in the theater from the other side of the backstage perspective. Um, it doesn't happen without dedication. It doesn't happen without taking chances, especially that leap of faith into New York, which uh, was just, of course – paid off beautifully. But you just never know what's going to happen. But I'll tell you, uh, I have always admired your, your passion, your dedication and your integrity. I think it's a great job for you to have now and I think you've been great for the theater wing and uh, I love being a part of it myself and uh, it's just been great to talk to you. Richard, that's, that's really very generous of you. I think I need to say that you know, you've been very kind to credit me but there's also enormous credit due to the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing and that board has grown and changed over the time that I've been there, first under the leadership of Sandra Gilman and Doug Leeds and now 
Ted Chapin. But there are a group of people who, like me, are really dedicated to theater and have really wanted to go on the same ride I've wanted to go on, which is to see the organization revitalized and ever more useful. So because I didn't want this conversation to become all about me, I think the recognition of the board is completely appropriate, if, even if it seems a little ostentatious at the moment. I also want to acknowledge our staff because it is a small band of people putting out an enormous amount of work. One of the misperceptions about the wing is that we're this huge organization and that's a direct result of the Tony Awards and, and the glamour and the attention that's attendant upon them. But in fact, we are a small, not-for-profit organization. It's a full-time staff of only six people doing this work. I do not do it alone and credit is due to them as well. That said, I want to finish with a story because as we've talked about inspiration and influence – when you were at Hartford, and I can't remember whether it was during Hamlet or Peregint, um, I'd set up an interview for you and as was my want, as most good publicists do, um, they monitor the interview and we have someone peering through the glass at us now to make sure I – even though I'm the subject of the interview, treat you properly. Um, and during the course of the interview, and I was sitting quietly, um, the interviewer brought up Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. And I remember this so vividly. And you said, Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. I grew up with Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. I loved Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. And you spun in your chair and you looked at me and said, didn't you grow up with Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop? And deadpan, I looked at you and said, no, Richard, I grew up with you. Oh, you're going to make me cry, man. But it's true that I go back to I have been very fortunate to meet artists who influenced me and though I knew you first for your television work as so many people did, the idea that both working with you gave comfort to my parents, which has no small – is of no small importance, um, but importantly that that I got to meet people who influenced me. You know, you played a character on television who was – introspective, thoughtful, bookish, somewhat out of sync in the community in which he lived. And you and I are 11 years apart in age. So I was really in my formative years when you were playing that part, which meant a lot to me as I know it meant to so many people that I get to know you and all the other people that have been on these programs – it's all I could have hoped for. So the wing has allowed me that and hopefully the wing can do that for other people. That said, I do have one prerogative that no guest has enjoyed on Downstage Center, which is that I get to end the interview. So for all of us at the American Theatre Wing and, of course, between you and me, I want to thank you, Richard Thomas, for guest moderating today 
And I promise you and everyone listening, I will return to the other side of the mic for all future programs. But thank you, Richard. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook, at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, and for Richard Thomas, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.